This morning, I'm so excited to share God's Word with you. I'm, I'm most excited about something I've been holding up my sleeve now for, for a few months. So if, if you normally come to Fielder, or maybe you normally watch online, we've been going through a sermon series called Like Jesus. I mentioned there were 12 characteristics, and over the last 12 weeks, we've been going one by one, looking at these characteristics of Jesus, just learning how majestic, how beautiful, how amazing Jesus is, and then asking the question each week, what would it look like for us to live like Jesus? And we finished that last week, except I had one little bonus characteristic I've been saving for Easter Sunday. I have a 13th characteristic I didn't even tell the staff about that I'm going to tell you about this morning. This is one of the ones that, that is my favorite of Jesus because I think it just sums up his whole life. And so if you've just joining us for the first time, by the way, I would encourage you to go back and listen to the other 12. You're going to discover some amazing things about Jesus. But at least hear this one. The last and final bonus characteristic of Jesus, here it is. Jesus always wins. Jesus always wins. There is not a person who has come against Jesus. There is not a thing that has come against Jesus. There's not a situation Jesus has been in where he's been defeated. He always wins. And I think there is no better Sunday than Resurrection Sunday to remember that. Because, because if it ever looked like Jesus was not going to win, it was going to be on Friday. In case you missed the Good Friday service that we had online, or maybe you're not as familiar with the story of the Bible, let me remind you what took place on Friday. So on Friday, in the early hours of the morning, before the sun has even come up, one of Jesus' own disciples betrays him, a sorry dog named Judas. And there's this, this force, Roman force and, and Jewish temple guards who come against Jesus in the middle of the night, and they arrest him. And then they do a false trial in the middle of the night with his Jewish leaders. They weren't supposed to have a trial in the middle of the night, but they do it anyway so they can condemn Jesus. And he gets tried and he gets tortured. And the worst part about it is all his disciples just utterly abandon him. They scatter, leave him. No one there with him at all. And they take this guy, Jesus, and they whip him. And they spit on his face. And they drag him to Golgotha. His blood caked on his body crown of thorns with blood flowing in his face, his back lashed to pieces, blood pouring down, and they nail him to a cross, and they leave him there to asphyxiate, asphyxiate, to die on that cross. And it just looks like there's no one there who can stop it. All the people walking by, they're, they're mocking him. They're jeering him. They're, they're making fun. Even one of the guys on the cross who's being crucified next to him is making fun of Jesus. And there's this guy who walks by, and he says, hey, if you're the Christ, save yourself but he doesn't do it. And everyone is convinced it's because he can't do it. Then comes that last moment. Jesus screams out and he breathes his last and his body goes limp on the cross and he dies. To the shock and horror of all his disciples, they see his body die. And just to confirm it, a Roman soldier comes up and sticks a spear in his side and blood and water comes out to prove he is officially dead. It's over. They take his body down, they put it in a tomb, and everybody walks away that day totally confused by what's just taking place. The disciples, they, they walk away with their tail between their legs, feeling totally defeated. They put their hope in a guy, and that guy died. Pharisees walk away feeling totally elated. We knew he wasn't the guy. Look, he's dead. The masses are there. They had been singing Hosanna a week before, and now they just yell, crucify him. They don't even know what just happened. The one thing they do know for sure, though, is he was dead and it was over. And every single disciple knew they'd lost their hope until Sunday morning comes. 
And there are these ladies that go to the tomb and they peek inside. And I want you to hear what they see, just in case you're not familiar with the story. Go to Luke 24, if you will, in your Bible. Luke 24, beginning in verse 1. I just want to read for you what these ladies felt. Remember where they are. They know it's over. They know they're defeated. They didn't even get to bury Jesus properly because the the sun had gone down on the Sabbath and they could no longer anoint him with oils like they're supposed to. They have to wait until Sunday morning when the Sabbath is over and there's light of day. And they go there to finish the job to anoint this defeated Messiah who had lost, still reeling from what had taken place on Friday before. Listen to what it says, Luke 24, beginning in verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and all the rest. I want you just to go here for a moment with these ladies. Here they are expecting to find a dead body, expecting to remember the defeat that Jesus had suffered. And they don't find the body. And the angels say, don't you remember what he told you? He was going to die, but three days later, he was going to rise up for the dead. He is not dead. He's alive. And in that moment, these ladies discover this truth. Jesus always wins. Death cannot come against him. Just think about this for a moment. Jesus put death to death. You got the grim reaper with a little sickle and that hood on his face, and bam, brother goes down, puts death in the grave. Death comes up against Jesus, gets in the ring with him, thinking he's going to take down Jesus, and he discovers he's Steve Urkel coming against Mike Tyson. Man, it's not going to work. You're going to go down, brother. And he found out what it means to get in the ring with King Jesus, and death went down. But here's the best part about it. It wasn't just death. Sin went down. Shame went down. The devil himself went down because they all came against Jesus, and they discovered Jesus always wins. No one defeats King Jesus. And what you and I get to do is we get to look at the resurrection of King Jesus and see the proof right there. The resurrection is the proof that Jesus always wins. And so the real question is, do you believe it? Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I know the vast majority of you in this room, if I asked you, do you believe in the resurrection, you would raise your hand and say, yes, I do. If you're watching online right now, I can't see you, but if I were to see you in your PJs and ask you, do you believe in the resurrection, you would say, I do. I think the vast majority of us genuinely believe in the resurrection, not because we're fools, not just because grandma told us the resurrection was true. We believe in the resurrection because we thought about it. And we know that the scriptures tell us there were over 500 eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus, and many of them died because they refused to recant that belief. And we know, like, why would someone die for something they knew wasn't true? And we see that evidence, and we go, it's enough for me to believe in it. And then we see the power of the church all over these centuries, and we see over and over again how the resurrection is proven to be victorious in people's lives. We see people who were addicts who get saved from their addiction, their lives utterly changed. We see people whose marriage was on the rocks, was about to be destroyed, and they come in, discover King Jesus, and their marriage is restored. We see people who used to be one way stingy, mean, evil, and they completely changed to be generous, kind, and loving. And all of a sudden, we realize only the resurrection could do that. We see evidence of the resurrection, and so we believe it. We genuinely believe it. I believe the majority of you in here genuinely 
in a heartfelt way, you genuinely believe the resurrection is true. But I have one fear. My fear is that you believe it up here in your brain, but it hasn't made the 18-inch journey to come on down here to your heart. And here's what I want you to understand. The resurrection is not just supposed to be an event we believe in. It's supposed to be a miracle that we experience. We're supposed to feel it from the depth of our soul, the resurrection. We're supposed to see tangible evidence of the miraculous power of the resurrection in our day in and our day out. And until we experience the resurrection, we're just playing around, even if we genuinely believe the resurrection is true. There was a prayer that the Apostle Paul prayed. I want you to turn to it, if you will. If you have your Bibles, words will be on the screen if you don't, but it's in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. I want you to listen to this prayer. Before I read it for you, though, I want you to think about this. Here's the Apostle Paul. He was this great missionary, and he just went around all over the known world at the time, declaring the truth of God's word, planting churches, spreading the gospel. And this is one of the many beautiful prayers that he lifts up, but I want you to listen to the content of his prayer. I want you to listen of all the things he could pray for them, what he prays. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. Here's what it says. Paul says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Now just stop there for a moment. Very simple thing it says here. Paul prays. He says, I want you to have the Holy Spirit, the spirit of revelation inside you, so that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you'll know three things. He says, I want you to know the hope of your calling. I want you to know the riches of your glorious inheritance. And I want you to know the surpassing greatness of his power that is at work in you who believe. Look at that last one, the power. He says, the same power that rose Jesus up from the dead, I want you to know that power at work inside you. Now, what's so interesting about this is the word he says, when he says, I want you to know this, he's not talking about head knowledge. And the reason you know that is because he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you would know these three things. Interesting little tidbit of information for you, you probably never knew. This is the only time that expression is used in the entire Bible. The eyes of your heart would be enlightened. It was not a common phrase in the Bible, but it was actually very common in ancient Greek literature. And every time that phrase was used, the eyes of your heart, it was referring to the depth of your soul, something that you experience, not just something that you cognitively know. He's talking about the journey from your head, moving on down to your heart, the eyes of your heart, that you would feel it in the depths of who you are because you know it by experience. What it's trying to say is, I don't want you just to have some cognitive hope. I want you to feel it, like in the depth of who you are, that you have hope in King Jesus. I don't want you to experience the glorious riches someday that's pie in the sky when you die in the future. I want you to experience the riches right now of his glorious inheritance. I don't want you to experience the power of the resurrection just one day when you die and you get to go up there. I want you to experience right now the power of the resurrection. That's what he's saying. And I want you to know there is such a difference between belief in something and experiencing something. In fact, I want to illustrate it for you. I want you to get out your, your honey stick. And remember, if you're allergic to honey, just say no, like drugs. Just say no. Don't, don't try to eat it. I don't, I don't want somebody having an episode in here. But if, if you've got crazy kids, just keep them away. Don't, don't let them get the honey. Remember, we're all going to be mature adults here and not destroy the place so I can keep my job. 
But if you look on the end of your honey stick in a moment, don't do it yet, I'm going to have you open it by biting on it. I'm going to explain how that's going to work. But just, just hang tight. Just look at it for a moment. So this is just your normal grade A honey. It, it's, it's nothing spectacular. It's honey. That's all it is. Nothing fancy about it. But honey is sweet. And all of you in this room know that honey's sweet. Now, there are different ways you could arrive at that knowledge of the sweetness of honey. There are some of you in here, and you are complete nerds, and you love science and how it all works, and you happen to know the science behind the sweetness of honey. You've done your research, and you know that bees go into flowers, and they pull out the nectaries, and they insert an enzyme that breaks down the, the energy in it, turns it into glucose, but more importantly, into fructose. And when that fructose enters your mouth, it, it hits the receptors of sweetness in your mouth, and it creates the sensation of sweetness. I mean, you, you, you've examined it. You understand scientifically how it works. You know that honey is sweet. You have knowledge of it. Or maybe it's not nearly that fancy. Maybe just everybody who's ever been around you has told you honey's sweet. 100 for 100%, everyone has told you honey's sweet. And you genuinely believe with every fiber of your being that honey's sweet. I mean, why would you not? Scientifically, it's true. Testimony shows it to be true. You can know it up here. But that is nothing compared to experiencing the sweetness of honey. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to get one of the ends, and I want you just to bite it. Kind of a long way, and it'll pop open. But be real careful. Don't get all crazy with it yet. Just get it to where it pops open on you. If you're watching online, trust me. This is true. This is real honey. Here's what I want you to do. In a moment, I'm going to have you bite and just slide some of the honey into your mouth. Then maybe you can help one of your kids if you need to. But just bite it and take in a little honey. Mm. Mm. That's some good stuff right there. I'm having a moment. Just give me a second, please. Mm-hmm. Oh, praise Jesus. I love me some honey. That's some good stuff. You can feel the honey inside your mouth, the sweetness of it. What you have just done is you've just experienced the sweetness of honey. When you have experienced the sweetness of honey, it doesn't matter all the scientific knowledge. It doesn't matter all the testimony anymore. All that matters is you genuinely know the sweetness of honey. You've experienced it. There is a difference between believing honey is sweet and experiencing the sweetness of honey. Okay, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Keep it upright. You can finish it all. That would be the best thing. You just keep on taking it down or set it somewhere where it's not going to get all over yourself or all over the chairs around you. Be careful with it. But here's what I want you to think about. It is no different when it comes to the miracles of Almighty God. God does not want you just to know about the miracles of God. He wants you to experience the miracles of God. And when you experience the miracles of God, it changes absolutely everything. I remember, I remember the, the first time I experienced the miracle of Almighty God. I experienced the fact that God does provide supernaturally for every single person who has need. It was when I was adopting my son Max. My wife and I were in the process of adopting him. And we had to raise somewhere between twenty-five dollars to $30,000 to be able to bring our child home. And at the time, we had one income family. My wife, who was a teacher, had uh, st uh, stopped teaching so she could raise our kids at home. And so the only income we had was my income, and we were barely making ends meet. But we knew God had called us to adopt. And there came a moment whenever we knew we had a payment to make. So the way it worked, that $25,000 was done in these installments of about $5,000 each time. And it come to that moment where we needed to pay the next $5,000. The problem was, it was a Saturday, Sunday time frame, and we had about $1,500, just a little over $1,500 in our bank account. 
And then we had to pay $5,000 by the end of the week, and we had no hope of getting it. Now listen, before that moment, I knew the Bible says that God richly supplies all of your needs according to his glorious grace. I, I knew that. My parents, they've raised me in a home. My grandfather was a pastor, raised me in a home where you believe the Bible's true, where you believe that God provides for those who have need. I, I've grown up with that belief my entire life. But I guarantee you, it changed when I saw it firsthand. So my wife and I are praying, God, you're going to have to come through miraculously. We don't know how this is going to work out. And literally, just a few days later, I go to the mailbox and I open it up. And I see an envelope with the name Chesapeake on the top. Now, for those of you who live in the Metroplex area, you may understand what that is. That there was a time when they were trying to get the mineral rights to come under and drill and take out the natural gas underneath the homes. And if you owned the mineral rights to your home, Chesapeake had to pay you some money in order to have the right to drill under your house. And they did the first time, they had you like signing moment. And in a really small print, they said if they didn't get the, the natural gas quick enough, they would have to do it again some, some year later. I had completely forgotten about that. Never thought it would happen. And I opened up this letter from Chesapeake. Now remember, I have a little over $1,500 in my bank account. I gotta get $5,000 turned in by the end of the week. I open up the envelope and I look at the check, $3,500 coming to me provide for my family so we could adopt our son, Max. Now, I, I am not a mathematician, but that puts me just slightly over the $5,000 mark. Now, listen, he could have sent that check two months beforehand, and it would have been awesome. I would have golf clapped the Lord, thank you so much. He could have sent it two months later and would have completely missed the opportunity. But he waits until I'm desperate. It's the week of... I have no hope, and he sends me that check. You know what I did whenever I got that check? I, I fell down. I was, oh, God, thank you. Thank you, Lord. Oh, God, thank you for your provision. I praised the king because in that moment I experienced it. I had known about his provision, but in the moment I experienced it, it changes everything because then I really know the surpassing greatness of the power of Almighty God inside me. Listen, this is what God wants for you. He doesn't want you just to know or even just believe the resurrection is true. He wants you to experience the victory of the resurrection in your life. But listen, don't take my word for it. This is what God's word says. I, I want to finish with one last verse. Romans 8, 11. Listen to what it says. Chew on this verse. The apostle Paul writes, Romans 8, 11, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. He said, if the spirit of the God who raised Jesus from the dead, who has that kind of power, lives in you, and every single person who has repented of their sins and placed their faith in Jesus Christ has the spirit of God in them, that means that the same power is at work in us, bringing life, bringing victory, bringing good, which means every one of us who are believers should be experiencing the victory of King Jesus in our lives. Every one of us should be knowing through experience the power of the resurrection. Because the resurrection proves that God has victory, that Jesus always wins, not just on the cross, not just in the grave, but in your life as well. The resurrection shows us that he can overcome any situation. He can overcome any sickness, any sin, any shame, any struggle that you have. He can overcome any addiction that you have. He can overcome any depression, any anxiety, any financial crisis, any marriage crisis, any trial, any problem. Whatever you have, Jesus always wins. And he wants to show you his power. And the question isn't, do you believe in the resurrection? The question is, are you experiencing the victory of the resurrection in your life? 
because you're supposed to experience it. He wants to give you victory. But I'm just afraid there are too many of you in this room, too many of you watching, and you have it all locked up in here, and you genuinely believe it, but you've never experienced the victory of the resurrection. But if you're here this morning, and you're desperate for it, if you're here this morning, you're going, I'm tired. I'm, I'm tired of my life being in shambles. I'm tired of all my problems. I'm tired of going right back to that addiction, right back to that problem, right back to that brokenness. I'm tired of never seeing victory. If you're at that point, today can be the day when you get to experience victory. Here's what I believe. I believe there are times in every, every person's life when they have defining moments in their life, moments that change the trajectory of their lives forever. Or moments when they look back to that moment 10, 20, 30 years later, and they say that was the moment when everything changed in my life. I believe that for some of you in this room this morning, maybe even some of you watching online, that today is your moment. Today is the defining moment when you decide, I'm tired of living in defeat. I'm tired of living in brokenness. I'm ready to experience the victory of the resurrection in my life. And today I want to give you an opportunity to receive that and to walk into it. It's not hard. The scriptures tell us what we do. The scriptures tell us that all we have to do is recognize how we've screwed up our own lives. Just look at your life and say, every time I've tried to live it out, all I do is I go right back into the gutters. I just keep falling again and again, and I'm sick of it. I'm sick of my brokenness. I'm sick of my sin. I'm sick of my addiction. I'm sick of never being able to change, and I hate it. Jesus, forgive me for what I've done with my life. I've, I've wrecked it over and over, and I haven't trusted you. Forgive me. And then you say, Jesus, here's my life. I believe you can give me victory. I can't secure victory for myself, so I trust you. Here's my life. Take over. And in that moment, it says the very Spirit of God comes inside of us, and we are raised ourselves. We go from death to life, and we discover the power of the resurrection, a new trajectory for our lives. I believe there are some of you in here today who need to take that step of faith. And there is no purer way to declare that than through the act of baptism. The act whenever... You go under the water, picturing your death and burial, and then you come up out of the water, picturing your resurrection. Like I said earlier, this is why we have a baptistry up here, because I believe there are some of you today who need to take the step of faith and say, today is my day. I'm ready to be baptized. Did you know that for the whole history of the church, the most important day of baptism for the history of the church has been Easter Sunday? Did you know that? For we've been as a church celebrating the Lenten season as we prepare for it since Ash Wednesday all the way to today. And the whole practice of Lent was developed because originally it was preparation for baptism. Baptism candidates would go through a 40-day cleansing period of soul preparation so they could be baptized on Easter Sunday. I just discovered that this year. And one of the things it showed me is that we need to come back to that moment. What better day to picture the death, burial, and resurrection that we have than on Easter Sunday? What more glorious day for you to testify of your faith in Jesus Christ than today? But it's going to require you to take a bold step of faith. So in a moment, I'm going to walk right down here to the front. I, the greatest miracle of all is I preached a short sermon. And I did it because I want to give us time to have baptisms in this service right now this morning. I honestly don't know if you're clapping because it's a short sermon or because there's going to be baptisms. I, I really don't know. But here's what I do know. I know that right now someone is about to have a moment. I know that for some of you in this room, and I, I know you feel it right now because there are some of you, and it, every single hair on your neck is standing up, on your arms is standing up, and you're going, oh, no. Oh, no, it's me. It's me. He's, he's talking about me. 
and you are going to fight. You are going to fight to stay in your seat. I've been praying for you. We had a number of people in here on Friday praying for you. We had a number of people last Wednesday praying for you. We've been praying for you for weeks. And here's what we've been praying. That the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says that the enemy has blinded the eyes of the unbelievers. But we've been attacking against that blindness, praying that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. So right now, if knowledge is coming to you, if, if a desire is coming to you, it's because there's a war waging inside of you and Jesus is getting victory. And today you are about to have your moment. But your moment's going to require a step of faith. You've got to step into your moment. And you can change the very trajectory, not just of your life, but your eternity. There are some of you who came in here this morning completely not expecting this to happen. There were a small number of you who came in here going, I'm getting baptized. You already heard about it. And you're going to come down front. You're going to meet with me because you're ready for this moment. There are others of you, you came not expecting this at all. You're going, I can't get, what am I going to get dunked in these clothes I'm wearing right now? Listen, you may not have come expecting, but God, he was expecting you because he's been working on you. He's been moving in your heart. He's been getting you ready. And we've been partnering with him. We have shorts. We have Jesus in my place t-shirts. We have counselors that are going to come meet with you. You're going to come down front and you're going to say boldly, I'm ready. I'm ready to step into my moment. I'm ready for God to change my life. I want to do this. I promise you, the church is ready to Praise God for this work to cheer you on. You just got to come. So here's what I ask you. I want to ask everyone in this room to stand up. And I'm coming down here to the front. If today you're saying, I'm ready, I need to be baptized, today's the day I step into my moment, then I want you to come right down in front with me. I want you to come meet me and say, I'm ready for this. Today I'm ready to be baptized. You come on down front with me right now. I'll be waiting for you. You come. 